It's Monday, August 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. It's Monday. It's Jason. How are you? Happy Monday. I'm well. How are you? I'm doing all right. We've all got right. Berkshire Hathaway's latest results. We are going to talk small cap tech, but we will begin with digital ads. The trade desk's second quarter revenue was double what it was a year ago. It was double, and their guidance was good. And despite that, shares of the trade desk down a little bit this morning. Although I will point out that uh, it's it's bounced back up from where it was at the open. Which anytime I see that, the you know the immediate reaction, the pre-market activity is worse than what it ends up being during the day. It makes me wonder if, um, at first blush, maybe this wasn't what Wall Street was looking for, and then they dig in a little deeper and they're like, "Oh, th- this was pretty good." Yeah, I mean, it's that's the the trick with pre-market and aftermarket, depending on when the company announces. I mean, obviously, there are always going to be knee-jerk reactions, um, reactions from investors just that are operating on a different timeline. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of a lot of the the money that's <laughs> controlled out there these days are run, running on a very a much shorter timeline than we tend to operate on. So uh, you, you try to look past that. And I've I've always said I I focus more on making sure that the company that management is doing what they say they're going to do and, and hitting the targets that they set. Uh, to me, that's far more important than than the arbitrary numbers that you get from uh, the street, so to speak. It's not to say those are irrelevant, but they're they're just they're just based on a much shorter timeline. They typically don't tell the whole story. And so, I mean, I think with the Trade Desk, it is a business that has has not only set itself up for success, uh, it's also a a business in in transition, right? And and we'll talk about that in a minute. I I think when you look at the numbers, uh, I mean, the numbers were terrific. They they exceeded the guidance that management set out a quarter ago. Revenue more than doubled uh, from a year ago uh, to $280 million for the quarter, and, and earnings per share followed suit. Customer attention remained very strong, over 95% for the quarter, uh, the way it has for the the previous seven years, I think. I mean, this company has just, for for the longest time, just done so well retaining its business and growing uh, relationships with its customers. And then the investments that they're making in uh, the Universal ID 2.0, that's this alternative to third-party cookies. They launched their Solomar platform, which is ultimately, uh, it, it's it's just another way for advertiser, advertisers to to onboard, to, to get that first-party data that's so important to them, um, better measurement, better goal setting. So, this is just a business that continues to reinvest in itself, and, and given the profitability of the business already, the cash flow nature of the business already, I mean, it it makes a lot of money. And so, I, you know, the, the valuation has always been seemingly a little bit stretched, but I think it's been stretched for really good reasons. I mean, you've got a company that is is keying in on a big market opportunity uh, with good financials and, and continuing to iterate and evolve and bring new tools uh, to its its biggest advertising partners. So, yeah, I, I think that market reaction today, notwithstanding, investors and the trade desk, and, and I'm one, you got to feel really good about what this business is doing. So, in terms of the the business of the trade desk transitioning, like what what should people be watching for? You know, there there are a lot of businesses in a lot of industries that try and either expand what they're doing, increase their optionality. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. What what are you going to be watching with the trade desk? 
Um, I, I think it'll be a couple of things in particular. Number one, management, every, every quarter really, they continue to, to hammer home this idea that um, the the advertising supported video on demand market is going to outpace the growth of subscription video on demand over the coming years. That that is the basis of this business, right? I mean, advertising supported video on demand. I mean, that's that's what they do, and I, I think that. It's very easy for us in our sort of domestic box here to view subscription as superior because you're able to avoid ads for the most part. Um, when you look at it from a global perspective, though, I mean, it's far different, right? I mean, there are a lot of a lot of a lot of economies out there, a lot of consumers that are far more economically sensitive uh, than than perhaps we are here. So, advertising is, is video on demand is certainly a, a a more attractive value proposition in many cases. And I think also a lot of the services that we're seeing rolled out here, even domestically, are incorporating advertising level tiers. Um, and so, to me. We'll want to continue to see that that advertising video on demand growth continue. We want to see that that continue to outpace subscription, um, and then also just the 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 buy-in in regard to this UID 2.0, right? This universal ID. The more partners, the more customers that buy into this idea. Um, that see the value in this concept. I think the more uh, that really validates the work that the trade desk is doing. And to that point, they uh, noted a, a few more partners that really bought on uh, over this past quarter. I mean, Omnicon Group, one AMC Networks bought in, um, even Snowflake. I mean, Snowflake with that that Snowflake's data cloud. I mean. You've got companies buying into this notion that that UID 2.0 is is uh, a, a good alternative to those third-party cookies, and uh, the more the more buy-in you see there, then that just sort of creates a little bit of a flywheel, and we love to see those flywheels, right? So uh, those are a couple of things I think worth keeping an eye on. Sorry about the noise in the background. Um, let's move on to Siva. Shares of Siva down four or five percent this morning. Um, we talked about this company back in February. It's a small tech company. Market cap of around a billion dollars. They own a portfolio of intellectual property serving the semiconductor industry. How did the second quarter look to you? Yeah, the second quarter looked great. I mean, this is a neat little business. And when I say little, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head there, right? I mean, just breaking through $100 million in annual revenue here uh, recently. And so, SIVA operates a licensing and royalty business model, and they ultimately uh, are getting technology into the silicon that gets out there into all sorts of different devices and applications. Uh, like AR and VR and artificial intelligence and 5G Internet of Things, robotics. I mean, SIBA has a wide reach there. Um, and I mean, when you talk about a customer base, it's a very large and broad one. Every, every, everyone from Broadcom and Cirrus Logic to Intel, iRobot, Nokia, Samsung, Sony. I mean, you're going to find that SIBA owned technology in a lot of the technology that you use on any given day. And so, again, I mean, a, a company where management setting expectations and then exceeding those expectations, revenue for the quarter of $30.5 million was up 29% from a year ago. Now, if you back out a, a royalty payment that they received, uh, it, it, was, it was a one-time royalty payment that was ultimately the resolution of a dispute. 
that growth was only 16.5%. But, I mean, it was still royalty revenue, right? It was revenue they were going to get one way or the other. So, that's more of a timing thing than anything else. But, um, I mean, they, they see all-time record high shipments of Bluetooth technology, Wi-Fi, cellular IoT devices. Um, and, and we saw also uh, some, some new licensing agreements for the quarter. They signed 17 licensing agreements. Um, six of those were with first-time customers and geographically uh, nicely diversified as well. Um, over the quarter, they made an acquisition of a little company called Intrinsics, and that's going to give SIVA more exposure to the aerospace and defense uh, and space markets. And, and those are obviously uh, very, very big and, and fairly reliable markets. So that's encouraging as well. Uh, so, so all things considered, I mean, this is the big picture thesis on a business like this is if you believe in this concept of connectivity, right? If you think that we're becoming more tech enabled and connectivity is only become is only becoming more and more uh, ubiquitous, well, then then Siva is is a company that should benefit from those tailwinds, and it 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 you know continues to look like they do benefit from these tailwinds, um, and so it's it's one I've enjoyed following. And uh, while it's it's very small, obviously, it is one that's going to be a little bit more volatile. Uh, trading volumes are much lower, so you see some some bigger price swings. Uh, it's it's one that I continue to say. I mean, you, you need you need patience with a business like this. This is one of those those types of, of companies where you buy it and you own it. You plan on holding this thing for the next ten years, maybe. I know that sounds like a long time, but that frankly is how you need to look at a business like this because we're looking at ultimately. Uh, a business that should remain very relevant even as we move beyond 5G into 6G, 7G, and, and so forth. I mean, SIVA is, is going to own this technology uh, that should remain relevant for, for a long time to come. And those licensing and royalty business models, they produce some really, really healthy margins. I mean, that's a 90% gross margin business. I mean, that's just, you don't see those off often. And so when you find them, you need to at least take note. How confident are you that in 10 years it's going to still be a standalone company? Because it's small I, enough and they're doing <laughs> enough interesting things that one of my thoughts looking at CV is, boy, someone with deep pockets has to be looking at this business. I, I feel like you're right. I mean, given the size, it would just be a, it would be, a, it would amount to a bolt-on acquisition for a lot of, of bigger players out there in the tech space. I mean, it, it wouldn't take anything just to just to buy this company up and and add it to your to your portfolio. Uh, so I, I didn't didn't make the recommendation based on that. But when I was doing the research for this business, that was one thing that kept on coming back to my mind. Was like I just. It really feels like, given the technology that they own, given the numbers that they continue to report, and, and given how many devices this company is in, given this this company's technology is in, it, it, it's difficult for me to imagine in ten years that it wouldn't be snapped up. Uh, but stranger things have happened, certainly. Speaking of deep pockets, Berkshire Hathaway's second quarter profits were seven percent higher than a year ago, and. We can talk about the reopening, boosting Berkshire's railroad and energy businesses, but this really seems increasingly like a share buyback story. <laughs> this, I mean, they are Buffett and Munger are sticking to their guns in terms of not overpaying for acquisitions. Their cash pile is only getting larger, even with the share buybacks. I think it's 140 billion dollars now. Yeah. And look, I'm not. If you're a shareholder, I mean, the stock's up, what, 23% this year? Yeah. Uh, you, know, like it, um, you know, it's not exciting, but 
but a stock going north is true yep stock going up is is, is an interesting and noteworthy uh, stock right that's one that, that makes you smile um and, and i think that with berkshire hathaway we're kind of getting what we more or less expect i think with a business like this at this point in its life um not lighting the world on fire but but still doing well i mean you look at the the last three and five years i believe it's underperformed the market a little bit but you stretch that timeline further out and it starts to look better and that's that's kind of the idea behind this business i mean you you, you look at a business like this and you, you sort of own it for a long long time and you never really worry about it and um and this quarter, I, I think, really explained why. I mean, you saw a nice bounce back from what was a difficult year last year. Uh, operating earnings up 21% from a year ago uh, because of, of, of what you noted there, performance in energy, railroads. I mean, obviously, insurance is going to be a little bit more reliable. Uh, but yeah, it does feel like this is a. It does feel like this is a story where the, the conversation is going to become more and more about how do we return value to shareholders. And I know there are a lot of folks out there who would love to see Berkshire start paying a dividend. Um, I kind of feel like that would make sense at this point for them. I'm not a shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway, but it feels like they could they could do that and, and, and it would it would probably make a lot of investors feel feel pretty good <laughs> uh, because they are repurchasing a ton of stock. To your point there, the, the, they repurchased $6 billion in, in stock uh, during the quarter. I think that brings the six-month total to better than $12 billion, basically on track for what they did last year. Um, so, yeah, they're not going to go out there and overpay for anything. And, and it's, it's a market where valuations are stretched, really, in a lot of ways. And it feels like they just believe that Berkshire Hathaway today represents a better value than most of what's out there. And I mean, I can respect that. Whether you agree with it or not, that's a different story entirely. But these guys are running the show and they have a pretty good idea of what the business is doing. And, and I think uh, they are very disciplined investors. To me, I think the interesting uh, question for Berkshire Hathaway really is what this company looks like in the future. I mean, at some point or another, it boils down to Greg Abel as the CEO and Todd and Ted uh, leading the way with those investment portfolios. So, yet you have to feel like there is going to be a pivot maybe towards tech or towards more forward-looking ideas. Um, whether that happens or not, I guess, remains to be seen. I feel like it, it has to at some point. Uh, which, which, you know, what does this business look like then? Because if you have these cash cow insurance businesses and you have some folks who feel more comfortable investing in tech, where, I mean, Munger and Buffett really, that's, that's not really been their forte. I mean, they've been very clear about that. Um, and, you know, th this could be, this could be a little bit of a different looking investment portfolio here over the coming decade. Um, it's sort of a Berkshire Hathaway 2.0, so to speak, which could be exciting for investors, I think. It could, and I, you know, I don't want to knock the underlying business. I mean, you look at sort of the the profits generated from operations this quarter. You know, it looked good. That's what's fueling. That's what's funding the share buyback. So they, you know, they've done such a good job finding and acquiring all these businesses that generate cash. It's just that for about a year now, this has been the dominant story with you know with this stock. Um, and uh, I'm I'm <laughs> I, I'm sure if I were a shareholder, I'd be perfectly fine with this. 
Um, but just as someone who, you know, is not a shareholder, I'm like, really? You don't want to spend any of <laughs> You don't want to take $28 billion and go buy McCormick and get there's some spice be, in that? There's got to be some, right? I mean, SIVA? Like, it just, it's just like uh, you, they'd find that you know, underneath the couch cushions, right? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's really, you wonder what goes on behind closed doors. I mean, allocating capital is difficult, and the bigger you get, uh, the more difficult it gets, particularly if you have such a long track record of success because expectations are even higher, right? I mean, people expect you to do something genius because you're Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Investing is as easy or as difficult as you want to make it. And it feels like right now they're just trying to keep things simple. I mean, they see the most value in their stock and their company. And um, I, yeah, again, we could argue whether that actually is the case or not. Uh, but it's in line, I think, with what they've historically done, with their, with their, uh, with the way that they've they've typically invested. So it's not surprising to see. Um, but yeah, again, I just I think it's going to be really neat to follow this story over the coming ten years and, and and beyond, just to see what this next iteration of Berkshire Hathaway is going to look like, because um, I, it just feels like there's a ton of potential there. Jason Moser. Great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Yes, sir. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.